As we return to our book study this morning, let me call your attention to the Holy Word of God as recorded in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We find here our Lord speaking to these unbelieving Jews. And then we come down to verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And to the one who comes to me, I will in no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 47, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. The pastor, Dr. John Owen, wrote this treatise on the mortification of sin in believers in the 17th century. And as an aid for Christians was his desire, it was his desire for it to be an aid to Christians in his day, as he puts it, that they might be able to walk in safe paths. And as he has been used of God and his work has been blessed throughout the centuries, it still remains a great help to believers in the 21st century. We come now to chapter 14, which is the last chapter in this helpful work. In this chapter, Owen discusses the work of mortification proper. Up to this point, he has only been giving directions of a preparatory nature. But now we come to the work itself. I wrestled with whether to give a bird's eye view of where we've been thus far in our study. But I realized that such an undertaking would extend these lessons into additional weeks, which is not my desire. That being said, I do think it's vital that I repeat a couple of things, or maybe three, that we might duly approach the killing of sin in a proper manner. First, no matter how attractive sin disguises itself, it is not your friend. And it makes you the enemy of God. Therefore, you must kill it. Secondly, to kill or mortify sin is not just an occasional conquest, but a habitual weakening, a constant fighting, and frequent success. Sin is not eradicated in this life, but if it's real mortification, if we're really putting sin to death, there will be constant fighting, habitual weakening, 
and frequent success. Thirdly, there is a great need to get a clear and abiding sense in our minds and consciences of the guilt, the danger, and evil of remaining sin. It makes us guilty because we break God's holy law. It makes us guilty because we despise the love and the mercy and the blood of Christ. It's dangerous because it hardens our hearts. It puts us in a position to receive temporal correction from the hand of our Father. It causes us to lose our peace and our strength. And if, if sin is left undealt with and unmortified, it will enter us into eternal destruction. It's evil. It grieves the spirit. It wounds the new man. And it takes away our usefulness. Brethren, we desire to be used of God in our generation. We desire for God to be glorified in our lives. And if sin is not dealt with properly, it will make us useless. It will put us on the shelf. This is a painful yet necessary work. Dr. Allen gave me a vivid description of this duty from his own profession. It's like when, upon examination, the dentist explains that the patient needs a periodontal cleaning. And because of the buildup of hardened plaque below the gum line, which you can't reach with your toothbrush, whereas I've teased Anna and Bethany that I clean my teeth with my pocket knife, <laughs> and they just shake their heads. <laughs> The dentist must use specialized tools to remove the tartar and the pockets of bacteria. Not only is there scaling, but root planting, where the dentist descends deep below the gums. Dr. Tom said, I hurt you. So much so that we may need to have a prescription written for pain medication or medicated toothpaste or rinse. But it's necessary to prevent dangerous complications. Some folks just want their teeth whitened. They're not really concerned about dental hygiene and the health of their gums and teeth. They just want to look good. Some folks who profess to be Christians just want to look good. They're not really concerned about their health spiritually. And the things that are necessary for us to be healthy spiritually sometimes is painful. And the work that Owen has called us to is a painful work because it causes us to look at our sins as, as it is in the scriptures. This should remind us of our Lord's words to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, see, he says, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside 
are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So Dr. Owen prescribes these directions in order that we come to this duty in the right posture. But Pastor Owen exhorts us to this efficacious exercise of looking onto Jesus with the eyes of faith to accomplish this work by the aid of the Holy Spirit. Richard Rushing, in his Puritan paperback, titles chapter 14, The Work of Christ and the Power of the Spirit. Aaron Wren, in his modern translation of this work, calls this chapter, Killing Sin Through Faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to Owen. Set faith at work on Christ for the killing of thy sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin sick souls. Live in this, and thou wilt die a conqueror. Yea, thou wilt, through the good providence of God, live to see thy lust dead at thy feet. We know, brethren, in that day when our Lord shall return, sin shall be put away and we'll know no longer those sins that nag us and trouble us and cause us grief. And that is the truth. But I believe Owen is talking about more than just glory. He's talking about if we duly give ourselves to this this work of mortification and putting sin to death, we'll see it at our feet in this life. We'll see sin weakened. And, 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 and rendered ineffective and useless under the power of God through the Holy Spirit and his holy word. We are to come, brethren, to this work and give ourselves to this work. We must find ourselves subduing sin with success. The writer of the Hebrews just doesn't tell us to lay aside every weight and sin which does easily ensnare us, Hebrews 12.1, nor just to run with endurance the race that is set before us. But he says, looking on to Jesus, the author, the originator, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith, verse 2. We're not just to engage in, in some outward activities. We are to set our eyes upon our Savior. Don't just grit your teeth and say, I must do better. Look to Jesus and plead the merits of his blood. I'm not talking about the charismatic formula of pleading the blood over every situation. Some of us had our pilgrimage in this way through charismatic circles. And many of you may be familiar with that term, plead the blood, the blood of Jesus. Um, I can still hear it in my head. And in those teachings, many teach that the pleading, pleading the blood of Jesus in prayer is a teaching common. When people speak of pleading the blood of Jesus in prayer, they are referring to the practice of claiming the power of Christ over any and every problem by using the phrase, I plead the blood of Jesus. And you fill in the blank. 
People fill in the blank with whatever they want. I plead the blood of Jesus over my family. I plead the blood of Jesus over my job. I plead the blood of Jesus over this dinner plate. Because I might not eat too much. I plead the blood over illness. Those who plead the blood of Jesus often do so in a context of speaking victory over demons. Pleading the blood of Jesus is a way of taking up the authority of Christ over the spirit world and announcing to the forces of darkness that they are powerless. Some base this aspect of pleading the blood of Christ on Revelations 12, 11, where it says they triumphed over him or Satan by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. That, that's not what I'm talking about this morning, brother. I'm not talking about using those words as some formula or some, as I often say, magic wand to to get what you want in prayer, to force God's hand or think you're more powerful. Your prayers have more kick to them if you say, I plead the blood. No, we need to plead the merits of Christ's blood when we come to him in prayer. The point I want to make is this. Many of us are aware of our sin and failure. And the focus is on what we are and not on what Christ has done. We're more, we're more conscious of and desirous of doing and being and engaged in some form of behavior modification, which can never give us spiritual victory and peace. We find ourselves following the foolish Galatians. Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect in the flesh? We've come at the first to Christ by faith and we've laid our all upon him. We've rested on him. And he has saved us by his marvelous grace. But for some reason, along the way, we think that we'll continue on in this in this path of sanctification. By our own efforts, by our own works. And doing things that we think will merit or give us victory. Brethren, we need to fixate on the person and work of Jesus Christ until we can see with the eyes of faith that I am not, but he is. I did not, but he did. I cannot, but he can. Listen to Owen as he answers the question, how? How? How can these things be? How does faith act on Christ to accomplish this? He says, use faith to fill your soul with the knowledge of the provision Christ has already made specifically for the purpose of killing your sin. By faith, ponder this. Although you are in no way able in your own by yourself to obtain any victory over your sin. And though you've and though you're even growing tired of the fight and ready to give up. Yet there is enough in Jesus Christ to bring you relief. And he quotes Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
That verse may have been, as Pastor Greg said last Sunday, that it may be, have been the most misused and misapplied text in the Bible. But when it comes to fighting sin, we need to grab this verse and know that we can do all things in the putting to death of our sin through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then Owen cites the prodigal son to help us get a picture of, of what, he's, what he's aiming at. He said the prodigal son was strengthened when he was about to give up by the thought that there was food enough for him in his father's house. And even though he was far away from home, just knowing that brought relief and steadied him. He was in the pig's pen. He had spent all his, his, his living on riotous living, and now he finds himself a good Jewish lad feeding pigs. And the Bible says he would have eaten what the pigs were eating. But he remembered. Wait. He remembered his father's heart. And he remembered there was food enough in his father's house. And I will arise and go to my father. Even before he got there, his heart was strengthened. His heart was, was, was invigorated with hope because he knew something of his father and his father's provision. And his hopes were not, were not unfounded. When he got home, they killed the fatty calf and they had a feast for him. And brethren, when we're down and burdened by our sin and we think we can't go on and, we got, and we're going to give up, we need to look at Christ and all the provisions that are in Christ for the putting to death of our sin. He has done a great work on Calvary. He has done a great work for his people. And we must lay hold of that by faith. In your greatest distress and anguish, consider the ultimate grace and riches, the treasures of strength, might, and help that are laid up in Christ for your support. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. John 1.16. Consider that God exalted him at his right hand and as a prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, Acts 5, 31. And beyond repentance to give us the ability to kill sin. Because without killing sin, there is no true repentance. Christ tells us that we receive purging grace by abiding in him. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you, John 15, 3. To put your faith on the fullness that is in Christ to be our supply is an excellent way of abiding in him. And Owen goes on and he calls us to look to Christ for the killing of our sin. Your mind should be full of these thoughts or exercised. By faith, the thoughts and apprehensions of things like this. Pastor Owen knew something of his own heart, but he knew something of his people's heart. He knew their struggles, and, and he was seeking to help them in their pilgrimage. 
Some of his people perhaps came to his study and talked to him and pleaded and asked for help. And he says, and they may have said things like this, I am a poor or pathetic and weak creature, unstable as water. I cannot perform. This sin is too much for me. And it's at the brink of ruining my soul. I don't know what to do. My soul is like parched ground and a serpent's nest. I have made promises and broke them. I treated them like they were nothing. Many times I thought that I had finally gotten victory and would be delivered. I've been deceived every time. So after all this, I finally see that without some overwhelming help from somebody else, I'm lost and will ultimately end up completely rejecting God. That's what people feel sometimes, even Christians. Because sin has gotten the best of them. And perhaps they've used some halfway measures or some carnal means to try to put their sin to death. They've not looked to Christ. But he goes on, he says, but though, but although my condition is really bad, I should take heart because Jesus, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, has ultimate grace in his heart and unlimited power in his hand. He is more than capable of killing all his enemies. There is more than enough provision in him to help me. Christ has everything we need to put sin to death. Brethren, do we believe the words that we sing in this place? That soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose. I will not, I will not, our Lord says, desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Christ says he will be with us. And he'll not forsake us. Owen says, he can take my pathetic soul and make me more than a conqueror. He can make me, a, he can make me super victorious. He can do that. He can take my drooping hands, my drooping soul. And so then Owen comes and he reminds us of some of the promises of God in the scriptures. And that's what we must do, brother. We must take these promises that God has given us in his word to stay our souls and to, and to give us a spiritual backbone and stand against the wiles of the enemy. So he reads from Isaiah chapter 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard, that the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is he weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no strength, he increases strength. 
Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's God's word to us, brethren. There is power. There is help to be found in our God. Yes, God can make this serpent's nest of my heart that's so full of abominations and temptations to be a place of green grass and fruit for himself. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the heart of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become shall become reeds and rushes. Isaiah 35. This is how God steadied Paul, he says, during his temptation. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Second Corinthians 12, 9. Though he wasn't allowed to immediately partake of that grace in such a way that he was completely freed from his temptation, the sufficiency of God's grace for that Deliverance was enough to steady his spirit. I may not see the victory immediate like I want, but when I come to God and I plead to God to take away this sin or or to help me battle this sin. God tells us my grace is sufficient. You want this thing removed. You think you can't go on unless this thing is out of your life. And God says, don't worry about that thing. Set your eyes upon Christ. My grace is sufficient to keep you in these situations, in these trials, in these temptations. Set your eyes upon Christ. Know that God's grace is sufficient to keep you. I say then by faith, think often on the unlimited supply of grace that is in Jesus Christ and how he can at any time strengthen and deliver you. Even if that does not give you an immediate victory, at least you will be strengthened in the chariot, he says. And you won't run from the battlefield until the battle is over. You'll be saved from despair, from giving up in unbelief or from seeking help from other places that will never work and never give you the victory you're looking for. (laughs) Can you you see the picture? He's saying you're, you're in the battle, you're fighting. And you don't feel like you're one of those mighty men of valor. You're not really one of those strong soldiers and you're doing the best you can. But you're, you're getting you're getting arrows shot at you and, and all kinds of things. And you're wounded and you're and you're reeling in the chariot. But he says, God's going to keep you in the chariot. You may be down, you may be wounded, but you won't fall out the chariot. God's going to keep you in the chariot until the battle is over. That's his promise. He will perfect the work which he's begun in us until that day. Brother, we must take heart and we must know that God is, is, is ready to keep us. He steadied Paul to the point where Paul says, I will glory in my, in my tribulations because in my weakness, I'm experiencing the strength and the power of God. And so these verses that we learn, they meet us where we live. And so when we come into trials, when we come against fierce temptations, it's time for us to lay hold of 
and embrace the word of God and set our eyes upon Christ. How can we be sure that Christ will really come through for us? Can we trust him? You say, Ernest, that's a foolish question. He says, lift your heart by faith and expect relief from Christ. Though it might seem like a long time as you're waiting for help in the middle of your struggle with sin, you can be sure that help will come at the appointed time. And you can also be sure that the time appointed by Jesus is the best time. We used to sing a song. He may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. And sometimes we want to put God on our timetable. But God has a purpose in all the things and the providences that he brings into our lives, all the temptations and all the trials that we experience. God is in control. Reformed Baptist, God is sovereign, right? He is in control of all things, and we must look to him for our aid and for our strength. You can also be sure that the time appointed, I say, is the right time. It's the best time. Christ will keep us. He will keep his people. Why should I believe? Why should I believe that Christ will keep me? What makes you so sure I won't end up disappointed that I trusted Christ? First, you have, he says, first of all, you have no other choice. (laughs) To whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? The the psalmist says, as long as I live and trouble rise, I'll hasten to his throne. Where else can we go, brethren? We must, we must echo the words of the apostle in John 6. We will receive help from Christ or from nobody at all. But beyond that, there may be things that should give us confidence that he really will respond. As for why we have no other choice besides Christ or nothing, I've already, he says, partially covered it when I show that killing sin is something only believers can do. Christ tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. Speaking especially in reference to purging from sin, the sin of your heart. Killing any sin must be done with a supply of grace. Simply, we simply can't do it ourselves. Now, regarding Christ and him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 1.19. And from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. John 1.16. He is the source from whence the new man must receive injections of life and strength or it will decay day by day. If we are strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner man, In our inner being, it's because Christ dwells in our heart through faith. Ephesians 3, 16 and 17. Then he talks about the work of the Holy Spirit. But he says, who promised him to us? 
Remember in our, in, in our, in our foundational text in, in, in uh, Romans chapter 8, if you, through the Spirit, do put to death the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. Through the Spirit, not in your own power, your own strength, but by the Spirit's power. And the Spirit of God is the one who gives us the ability and the strength. And so he says, who promised him to us? Aren't all our expectations about help of the spirit based on Christ alone? You can be absolutely certain that if you don't get help from Christ, you aren't going to find it anywhere else, he says. Here are some reasons why you should have confidence that Christ will come through for you. He says, think of his mercy. Think about the mercifulness, the tenderness and kindness he shows as our great high priest at the right hand of God. Surely he feels compassion towards you in your distress. As he says in Isaiah, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. Isaiah 66, 13. He has the same tenderness towards us that a mother has to her nursing baby. Or consider Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help to help those who are tempted. What does it say again? Because he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able. And then there's a question, did the sufferings and temptations of Christ experience add to his ability and power? He says, given that he is God, technically they didn't. He was already all powerful. What is this referring to? It's referring to his being ready and willing to use his power to help us. He is willing to help. And there is nothing that can stop him. He is able. Brethren, take Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so in light of that, the Bible says, let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Come boldly, come with confidence to the throne of grace because we have such a high priest and he will aid us and he will help us. We should expect to receive help from Christ. He comes when in those as Owen calls it, those grace for seasonable. He, he comes with this grace for seasonable help. What is seasonable help? What kind of season? It's the season of need. When we need help. We ever needed the Lord before. I keep getting these, these, these songs keep coming up in my mind. If we never needed the Lord before, we sure do need him now. We need him every day and every hour. And we need to come to him and we need to trust him. Think of his mercy. Think about the faithfulness of him who promised to help. He is faithful. He'll keep his promise. 
He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. First Thessalonians 5, 24. Christ promises help. His help is numerous. There's so many ways he can help us. There's so many advantages to coming to Christ and trusting in Christ. Here's some other things that excite you to come to Christ. It brings him to complete and speedy assistance. The psalmist said, and those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. When you come with a heart desiring God's help, desiring Christ's help, looking to Christ by faith, you're moving Christ's heart to come to your aid. He's, he's, he's desirous to help you. He's desirous to be your, your strong tower. But it also motivates our hearts to be on the lookout for all the ways Christ is showing himself to us. And so to take in assistance that he is giving. We go to that place where Christ communicates his help and his power to his people. That's why we as your elders plead with you and, and, and pray that you would value the Lord's day. And when you come here and hear God's word proclaimed, this is the time and the place of help. This is the time in the place where we meet Christ and where he communicates his help to us. Owen says, if, if, you were, if you were a panhandler or a beggar, do you know those people who, 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 who desire money? Where do they go? Which way we, they don't go out here in the, in the back in the field here and sit in the, in the back of our field here and, and, and desire alms. Where do they go? They go to the main thoroughfares. But not just the main thoroughfares with a lot of cars. They go to the red light. They know people stop there. They can expect something there. I've got a captive audience, and if they roll down their window, maybe they'll feel sorry enough for me. And some of these people come along, and they even bring their children and their wives, and they beg. Why? They know there's a place where they can receive help. Or they'll go to Walmart and stand in the, in, in the parking lot, and they'll beg, because that's a place where they can receive help. And what Owen is getting at, if we want God's help, if we want Christ's help, we must come expectantly to the place where Christ is communicated and gives his help to his people. So our, our room should never be empty when it's time for us to come for corporate prayer because we always need help. Every single day and we go through our days with struggles and we wonder why we have not come and sought the help that God is offering to us as we come as his people and plead before the throne of grace. Come boldly, come with confidence. He is waiting to help us and aid us. Will we not come? Do we cherish the Lord's Day evening? Another opportunity For Christ to communicate his help to us and to give us aid. Brethren, we we need to be excited and bring our hearts to God. He goes on, he gives some final instructions about putting our faith on Christ to kill sin. 
put faith, especially on the death and blood and cross of Christ. That is, on Christ crucified and slain. When we meditate on Christ, let us remember where this power comes from, where this cleansing comes from. He has washed us from our sins in his blood. Or as a more accurate translation would read, he has released us, Revelation 1-5, from our sins by his blood. It's available for us. We must come and act faith on Christ's death in expectation of his power and as an aid to pursuing new obedience. Owen goes on, he talks about the work of the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit is the only one who can do this work in us. Christ has sent us his spirit and his spirit does a mighty work. The spirit alone clearly and fully convicts the heart of evil and the guilt and danger of sin to be killed. It is the Holy Spirit and the spirit alone who clearly and fully convinces us, he says. Do we experience this Holy Spirit wrought conviction? He comes with power. The Holy Spirit alone reveals us to us the fullness of Christ for our relief. The Spirit alone establishes in the heart an expectation of help from Christ. The Spirit alone brings the cross of Christ into our hearts with sin-killing power. The Spirit alone is the author and finisher of our sanctification. He borrows the language that our Lord Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. He says the Holy Spirit is the author and finisher of our sanctification. The Spirit supports us in our prayers. God gives us the spirit of supplication and his promise to those who look on him whom they pierced. Zechariah 12, 10. The spirit makes groanings too deep for words, he says. Brethren, if you through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. You'll have a vigorous, robust, healthy Christian life and you'll glorify God as you obey him in a dark and perverse generation as bright lights. But if you live after the flesh, you will die. You'll die physically, and you'll experience the second death, which is the eternal wrath of God. May we not dally with sin. May we not think lightly of sin. May we not Use halfway measures just to quiet our consciences or to look good in the eyes of other people. May we have heart dealings with God. God has promised that if we by the Spirit mortify the deeds of the flesh, we shall live. Brother, I trust that as we've looked at these things over the past year, we're trying to put to death and take these instructions from this old Puritan and put these things to work in our lives that we might live to the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father,
we come now and we plead with you on the merits of our Savior. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be our aid. Help us to see what you have in your storehouse to aid us in the battle. And we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be convicting us of our sin, and that you would be giving us strength and power to memorize, to meditate, and to wield the sword of your word in our lives as we seek to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And Father, we ask that you would do this not because we're worthy, but because Jesus has died for his people. And such we are. And we thank you in his blessed name. Amen.